You know, building the security forces of another country, I mean, what you're doing in essence is you're helping them make a state. When we look at like Afghanistan, it was it, it was obvious in 2018, that's what we had essentially built, another Fabergé egg army. We have a lot of problems with SFA, uh, but it's something that we're probably gonna do more of because uh, in terms of pursuit of our national interests, we're, we're gonna see it as necessary. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and I'm joined in this episode by Will Reno and Frankie Matasek. Will is a professor at Northwestern University and chair of its political science department, and Frankie is an active duty Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and an associate professor in the Air Force Academy's Military and Strategic Studies Department. They have each conducted a ton of research on the topic of security force assistance, and together, they are currently working on a DoD-funded project to study what makes security force assistance work, and when it doesn't work, what contributes to its failure. After 20 years of America's post-9-11 wars and the U.S. military's struggle, frankly, to achieve its security force assistance objectives, there is an open and important discussion taking place about what role this mission should play for the United States in a very different strategic environment going forward. The conversation you'll hear in this episode is part of that discussion. Before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, please do so. You can find it on your favorite podcast app. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Will Reno and Frankie Matasek. Will and Frankie, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. We're going to talk about security force assistance today, and we're going to talk about some of your research, which which focuses on some particular aspects of it and some key details kind of surrounding the issue. Uh, but before we get into some of those details, I wonder if we can kind of set the stage for the conversation by talking about definitions. You know, security force assistance is one of these things that conceptually we know when we see. But I wonder if either in the academic literature, which you guys are familiar with, and or among practitioners, which you guys are also familiar with, I wonder if there's been a struggle at all to kind of define what it means. Well, I mean, there there is a, a struggle to define it because like the U.S. was the first to sort of uh, codify it in uh, doctrine, uh, the Joint Doctrine Note uh, 1-13 uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, but it is sort of spread out into uh, the U.K. and now... NATO has their uh, own, their actual doctrine. It's like the Allied Joint Doctrine 3.15. And then we found out the other day, talking to some French officers, they actually don't even use the US or the NATO or the British definition. They have their own definition for this. Um, but conceptually, I, I don't like to get caught in the weeds of the doctrine uh, because even if you talk to the average military member that's doing a security force assistance SFA, uh, they're not going to be able to really recite the doctrine to you, but I think conceptually it really comes down to uh, a stronger military going into another country and trying to make that partner, ally, proxy force more militarily effective. And I think that's probably the most concise way of talking about it in one sentence. Now, of course, if you're NATO, you, you call it a crisis zone. If you were the U.S., you call it like a fragile state or a, a, you know, a state with a civil war or weak institutions. Um, and I know, um, like my colleague here, Will Reno has even more to say about it because I mean, he's been doing this much longer than I have. 
Well, I can remember the Cold War, and there was something called foreign <clears throat> internal defense. And, you know, so FID, that sort of looks a lot like uh, security force assistance to me, or if I think about the British um, giving assistance to um, partisan groups during World War II and in the Balkans and so forth. So I'd see it as uh, different flavors of really the same same kind of treat. So, and And that's the thing, too, is, again— End of the day, your job is just to make that partner military better. The, I, I don't well, think it's there. The you go. You got the basic definition there, right? <laughs> you try to make somebody else's military better, and you get to do it in different ways depending on the geopolitical context and sort of what you're defining your national interest and so forth. And um, you know, and then let the doctrine writers come up with a real specific <laughs> definition of it. But I think that. It really comes back to some of these more general concepts of trying to get your allies or your proxies, uh, security forces or military to act better. And um, looking at it in the long view as well, it, it could be that we're coming to a definition of security force assistance that looks more like the Cold War definition because we're finding ourselves in a more competitive environment like the cold war and indirect warfare i mean we're not going to fight great powers particularly nuclear armed ones hopefully not uh, but if we're going to do that we're going to do it through proxies by know, with through by with through and and there there we are and you know i suspect that 10 years from now we might see a different definition of security force assistance and and uh, it will probably reflect the, those geopolitical changes. So I understand that you have a uh, Minerva grant that funds research. Uh, presumably your mandate was not just to go study SFA, that maybe there were some uh, narrower parameters kind of defining it. I wonder if you can kind of describe your research. Well, yeah. Um, so since 2000, uh, the U.S. government has spent over $340 billion on training, advising, equipping foreign militaries. Uh, Afghanistan since 2001 was almost $90 billion. And then if you throw in the amount of money that NATO invested in that as well, it's probably another $10 billion on top of that. Um, but I think the thing that really actually drew us to this project was the fact that we were looking at that and we were sh struggling with the, the concept, the fact that that's a lot of money. And I'm not sure we have gotten uh, what we think we've paid for. and uh, That's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we approached this from like, okay, uh, when does military assistance work? When does it not work? And ultimately we pitched the, this uh, maturity model, uh, uh, maturity process model to basically uh, look for ways to essentially improve this. To put some icing on the cake too, um, we're looking at SFA in, in weak states. And uh, you know, part of the motivation for the work that we're doing is that, as I think about it at least, is that uh, I thought, wow, this is a really bizarre process because I'm, I'm the kind of on the ground context guy. and. Looking at our government, our uh, defense establishment, trying to 
change institutions, change mindsets in other countries. Yeah, you know, and it, I think it works pretty well in some instances because there are an awful lot of people that get training from us that kind of want to be us, I think. Um, and you can see that in popular culture. You can see that in their attitudes. But when you look at the picture in countries, well, Afghanistan, we've <laughs> got more water under the bridge, but also sub-Saharan Africa, uh, some countries in the Middle East, uh, it is kind of a mind-melting concept that, you know, building the security forces of another country, I mean, what you're doing in essence is you're helping them make a state. And, you know, making a state, that control over coercion, it's uh, it's kind of an intimate process. <laughs> and to have an outsider come in, you know, busting in to be involved in that intimate pro uh, process, you know, sometimes it works really well. Uh, but a lot of times it's, it's, it's a bad relationship. And that's part of what we're after with, with this research is that there are little corners where that relationship works. I think it's pretty well understood that there are a lot of problems with, with that kind of um, intervention, with that kind of relationship. Um, but but it, it, it is very interesting, and as, as I had alluded to earlier, I think it's also very essential in the changing geopolitics because we have a lot of problems with SFA, uh, but it's something that we're probably going to do more of because uh, in terms of pursuit of our national interests, we're, we're going to see it as necessary. When you mentioned that some of the partners that we train want to kind of be like us, um, it reminded me of my first deployment to Baghdad in 2008. This is a time when uh, there was lots of new protective gear being issued. Um, one of the items was a set of knee pads. And, you know, if a commander said you will wear all this protective gear when you're out on patrol, uh, including the knee pads, uh, you had to do it. But you saw soldiers start to kind of drop one of them around their ankles. So they'd keep one up in case they ever needed to take a knee. But in other cases, just wearing them both around their ankles, meeting the the letter, if not the spirit of the uh, of the order to, to wear this particular item of protective gear. When the Iraqi National Police Battalion in our area of operations um, somehow got knee pads out to all of their members. The first thing that you saw at checkpoints when you'd be rolling around the AO is that they all had the knee pads around their ankles. And it, you know, it was comical at the time, but it also strikes me that this is, if they want to look like us and be like us, that can perhaps be leveraged to incentivize them to act like us as well. Um, shifting gears, you mentioned Minerva, who funds your research. Minerva is a DOD entity that, uh, that essentially tries to take to apply social science research to real-world operational problems. Um, we talk often about this sort of gap between academia and practitioners. With respect to SFA, are there differences in the way that security force assistance is, is conceptualized by academics studying the issue and the way that it's operationalized by practitioners in the field? Oh, good Lord. Um, I think I probably have an allergy to PowerPoint, so that <laughs> would be one big conceptual difference. Uh, you know, I'm sure I travel and meet folks who do F SFA and people who are on the receiving end of it, but, but I sit around and I read a lot of books and I look at it in broader historical terms and, and compare it how other countries define SFA and so forth. So I think in terms of, of conceptualization, probably to the practitioner, um, 
uh, I, I guess I don't really care that much about a precise definition. Uh, I know what I'm looking at, you know, which is, you know, our forces or our defense establishment trying to make another defense establishment stronger, greater capacity, maybe more like us. I mean, but it, it depends on the context. So as an academic, I, I think that probably the practitioner would look at me and think, wow, that's kind of fuzzy the way that he looks at it. And, and, um, but you know, I write books, so you got to read that 250 pages <laughs> and figure out what, what the punchline is at the end. Uh, and practitioner, they want the PowerPoint. But I mean, to be fair though, like to Will, you know, saying he writes books, I mean, the average academic would just, you know, hear a story and be like, uh, it's just a story. It's an anecdote. But he and I will like start talking and be like, Hey, we keep hearing the exact same stories told from different people. And at a certain point, like, you know, you hear it enough times. You're like, yeah, these are anecdotes, but this, this reflects the reality. And so you, you know, you look at the policy or the news and you're like, well, that's what they're saying. And yet we're talking to like all of the operators on the ground and the reality is completely different from what's being advertised uh, in the news. And I think the best example of that was uh, in Niger, four Green Berets were killed. And for the first few months after that, all the announcements about what were Green Berets doing there, why were they killed? You know, announcements were either saying, oh, they were doing foreign internal defense. Other people were saying, oh, they were doing security force assistance. And then, of course, Congress, you know, people in Congress are like, we didn't approve this. We didn't authorize this. Why is the army in Niger and why are they getting killed? And this is sort of, I think, this is, it's the disconnect between the policy and the strategic level and the, and the tactical level. And that's what I think, uh, that's the importance of, you know, talking to advisors, but also talking to the host nation forces. So I think at this point, or at least over the last couple of years, uh, collectively, I think we've interviewed hundreds of advisors from the US and also allied militaries and also hundreds of uh, foreign military personnel that have received uh, military assistance from the US and NATO. And it's incredible to see like the disconnect between what the U.S. or other Western powers say about military assistance and then talking to a person on the receiving end uh, and just seeing that there is so much left to be studied and discussed about it. Yeah, Frankie, I mean, that really hits a nail on the head and it gets to really the heart of our project, which is that, you know, I'm talking to the people that are on the receiving end. I mean, that's that's really kind of where I come at this whole thing. And you see the gap between the doctrine, sort of what, what the operational plan says, and then imagine yourself, you're in Mogadishu, and you meet some poor, frustrated guy, you know, contractor or whatever, who has to deal with the stark fist of reality on that ground and how different that is. Because it, it's that... SFA, the way that it's designed, it's, I mean, you know, speaking from my own perspective here on this, it's, it's designed for El Salvador, maybe in the 1980s, you know, plus we got the safeguards and all this kind of stuff now, you know, or, or maybe Colombia. Uh, but these are places that have states, they got institutions, they have political will that might not be exactly the same as ours. Um, maybe their interests are not exactly the same as ours, but they're pretty close. 
So when we talk about capabilities, we do something to try to increase the capability of, of their security forces. That host government, it's going to work with us. It's going to be a partner. But when you're under the hot sun in Mogadishu and you're trying to provide assistance to a militia that happens to be the sovereign government, but it's not the strongest force in that country. It's not the thing that actually rules most of that country and doesn't even rule the capital at night. A defense minister that other people don't want to talk to because they're afraid that he's got to talk to his cousin who's talking to somebody else and might not be the right people. I mean, that is a very, very different situation. It's a whole different frame of mind, way of thinking about armed conflict, exercise of coercion, state building, all of these sorts of things that that us as security force assistance providers are engaging in, but really, really different in terms of what those interests are and, and what those outcomes happen to be, and which is one of the things that attracted us to this project in the first place, specifically weak state. No, but I mean, but that's that's what I think uh, actually is so fascinating about this. And this is like the utopian policy and the idealism that, that comes alongside of it meeting the harsh reality as, as Will Rinna loves to talk about the, the, the stark fist of reality, which is you are trying to make professional forces in an unprofessional state. And that is, that is where the, the water and oil does not mix. And the few times that you can actually build professional forces in a host nation, they have to be so politically and even almost geographically isolated from the bad politics of the state that I, 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 I created this term a few years ago to call it a, a military enclave. It, you know, it's this pocket of efficiency and effectiveness within a otherwise failed, fragile, weak state. What's an example of one? Oh, I mean, so in Iraq, it was the Golden Division, right? That was basically the only division, you know, in 2014 and after, for the most part, that was willing to fight ISIS. Everyone else just threw off their uniform or surrendered, and that was it. Even in Afghanistan, uh, pretty much the only folks who actually fought in like, the, like, like that final week or so was uh, the Air Force. Uh, and that was basically the pilots that was the making their choice to fly up to Kabul and get evacuated or just defecting across the lines. But it was, it was, it was the Kandaks, right? It was, it was the special operation forces because they were so separated from the policy of the state. They knew they could not negotiate, you know, a deal with the Taliban because they were viewed as basically American forces. And yeah, they wear, Somalia, Oakley's, they wear Oakley's too much and you know, they're wearing <laughs> their knee pads down below their ankles. I mean, it, it, see, and this is the problem. It, it, it's sort of like, you know, talking about bad relationships, you know, love and too much. I mean, it, it, it can work real well. I mean, Danab in, in Somalia's case, I know pretty well. And yeah, I mean, basically what they do is they become an adjunct of whoever it is um, that's sort of providing them with models, you know, that can be special forces or whatever. Um, for whatever purpose or, you know, for whatever reason in their own society, they begin to identify with that model. But when they do that, they get further and further away from the political context that we're trying to influence. And 
Also, they become more dangerous to the government that, that is their host or that they're supposed to be serving because that capability and what we're concerned about, I mean, on, on a policy level, not as researchers, but the policy folks are, you know, what I, what I see is the short-sightedness of it is that we're concerned about um, capabilities. I mean, capabilities are really important. But the, but the problem is that when you separate capabilities from political will or the politics around it, then what that does is that's the loving too much because they get real proficient. <laughs> but but the rest of your the institutions that you're trying to trying to boost, you know, it's 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 sort of like the antibodies come out and you know, start trying to trying to pull them back down or, or they don't want them, you know? So, so you got that capability part, but it's that big other part, that politics part in, in, in a country where you don't have the political will to, to accept what it is that we are trying to do with security force assistance. I mean, they'll take the money, but, but, um, and, and there may be, some congruence of of political will but but in the end um you know maybe there's not enough so the real question then is like what are we doing in these situations and is there a way to do it better you know we've we've spent a lot of money uh on this mission over you know 20 years in iraq and afghanistan but the, the but the way that we've conducted it has not been the sort of monolithic consistent thing. We've had special operations forces, especially the U.S. Army Special Forces, who have done it as kind of a core part of uh, of their mission in both countries. Um, we went through a period, especially in, in Iraq, where we had MITs and NIPITs, military transition teams and national police transition teams, in some case, you know, fairly cohesively constituted from some place in the Army or elsewhere across the Joint Force. In other cases, you know, almost kind of cobbled together, uh, you know, with people from multiple services, both active and reserve components. Um, and the army finally sort of settled on this idea of security force assistance brigades that were our sort of professionalized forces dedicated to this mission. I'm going to give you kind of three narratives that I think are circulating right now about security force assistance. And I want you to tell me which one sort of hits closest to the mark or, or if none of them really do. First, uh, security force assistance in Iraq and Afghanistan was a failure and it's a fool's errand to try to do it again. Second, um, it's important, so important that we need professionalized forces capable of doing that, whether that's special operations forces or the SVABs. Or third, it's important, but also secondary. And so while we should be able to be prepared to do this mission, it's really a matter of coming up with solutions for it as the need arises going forward. Um, I don't want to say all three. <laughs> I'd go for two and three. Yeah, yeah, oh, see, I see. And I, I would split on uh, the first two. And the reason why I say that is, uh, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of this was a waste. Uh, that's why, I, you know, I, I use this term, you know, building a Fabergé egg armies, right? Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia. I wrote that article back in 2018. Like, I, I looked at Iraq and what happened in 2014, 2015. And I'm like, yeah, we spent all this money, you know, to make this big, a shiny military with Abrams tanks, F-16s, A-29s, like all kinds of like expensive technology and pretty much 
a lot of them just chose not to fight. And the only thing that hung around was the Golden Division. And the U.S. really only saves the day when ISIS gets within 20 kilometers of the Baghdad airport. Um, but like when we look at like Afghanistan, it was it, it, it was obvious in 2018 that's what we had essentially built another Fabergé egg army. And again, looking at Somalia, we've basically done kind of the same thing: is we've spent all this money doing it, and yet we never really got past the stage of like what's actually going to keep this force cohesive within the like the political context. And that's and that's another article that that Will and I wrote together was like. Uh, most of the time, the reason why it doesn't work is because we don't acknowledge the realities of the political context in which we are trying to build a partner force. And that I think we get, you know, we get too ambitious because we do have, I guess, uh, you know, some people act like we have a blank check when we do this. And so, you know, I, I, like it's, it's really funny, you know, in my interviews across Africa, you know, there's always talk of, you know, air advisors trying to give a C-130s to all these African countries. And when they brief it to the MOD for, you know, Africa country X, Y, or Z, they get sticker shock of realizing how much it's going to cost them. And I, th I think the last time I was in a brief, uh, uh, I think it was actually like the Rwandans, uh, were basically told by the Americans, we're going to give you a C-130, uh, for free, but this is how much it's going to cost you. And I think, you know, per year costs. Yeah. And it was like 300 plus million dollars a year in terms of logistics infrastructure you know personnel and they were just like that's that's like almost our entire budget <laughs> see rwandans were smart enough to ask <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing you know in niger we gave them a c-130 and then it got it got stuck in depot in spain and i don't know if that's i think it's been there for almost 10 years i think they may finally be getting it out but they couldn't afford to get it back and and so it's it's the the fact that we keep getting caught in this trap of giving things to countries that we know uh, can't take care of them. So then it gets you know it creates a, a new dependency of either we have to keep giving them money to figure it out, or we have to keep giving money to ourselves to send contractors to go do it for them. I mean, it just creates a host of of issues. When at the end of the day, sometimes all you need to do is. Can you just make some basic level cohesive units that are just slightly more effective than the rebels and insurgents or terrorists they're fighting? And we try, it's almost like you're trying to hit like a grand slam when all you need to do is hit a single, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and well, back to the one, two, three, I'm kind of two and three which is yeah it's it's not a really good record which i guess was two and three is yeah we're going to keep doing it and the reason is because we're going to have to and that's because in a changing geostrategic context uh warfare tends to be indirect between great powers so what we're going to do is we're going to contest for influence in places that have really weak institutions and we can see that we've done this before, but we did it in a different way. Uh, I mean, right now it takes about three years to put together <laughs> security force assistance operation. And, you know, we've looking at the last 30 years or so, we can let it get real complex. Uh, we can get it all sort of like Cadillac escalated out because um, there wasn't really any competition. So I think that that's part of the problem. I mean, part of the problem is us. It's, uh, okay, country got a weak institution. That's, that's like a problem. But, but part of the problem is that we're trying to make 
security force assistance into something that I think is unrealistic. It's kind of controversial to say that because if, if I follow through and I say, okay, well, what's the alternative? It's like I tell grad students, look, don't swim upstream. You're doing a complex thing. You got to do a whole bunch of things at once. If you swim upstream, if, oh, you're thinking too much about, you know, how you want it to be just the way you want it to be, you're going to get tired and you're going you're, you're gonna to go under the waves. You're going to drown. Swim downstream. See, downstream is the political context. And if I'm thinking about the political context of a place, I think I can achieve, you know, maybe passable results, but I would do it in a really different way. Now, the problem in doing it a different way is that sometimes these are bad people. And I'm not a bad man, but sometimes in certain situations, what I would have to do is, if I'm doing F SFA, is I got to think, what would a bad man do in this situation? See, and that's one of the big crunch points for us is that, you know, we have a certain way of doing things and we have certain values that, that cause us to say, okay, we're going to do SFA this way. We're not going to deal with human rights abusers, even if these are the most sort of politically contextualized, most effective parts of, of those security forces and, and working with them would be the most efficient way to achieve our national interests. Well, but, but in the future, I think that these are choices that we're probably going to have to make because as the global, global environment becomes more competitive, we're going to have to think more clearly about what our interests actually are. And, and I think that when you get a process that takes three years to actually put something from, you know, doctrine into actual operation on the ground, um, that's a product of, of an uncompetitive environment. You don't have to try that hard <laughs> if no. you get to take three years. No, and, and this I'm actually glad you brought this up because we were just talking to some French military advisors uh, and to his point about the human rights and sort of like, are you going to have uh, a long-term objective in mind? Uh, I had made a comment about uh, a Cameroon's uh, special, it's, uh, it's known as the BIR, the Battalion Intervention or rapid uh how the u.s uh and a few other countries basically pulled all their support and training of them because they were committing human rights abuses uh in terms of like uh they allegedly attacked some anglophone areas and did a lot of bad things and i think bbc even i think advertised it because they were able to trace it at all but when we made a comment about this uh like the french advisors were like but cameroon that's you know, it's 5,000 troops. That's their most, that's the most effective part of the state. It's what's keeping the country together. It's what's keeping the jihadist out. And I mean, because that's, that's the French guy speaking about French national interests, which is that, yeah, sure. They care about the internal politics of, of Cameroon. But one thing they actually care more about is finding and killing jihadists who create a situation that, would lead to, you know, massive migration uh, to to Southern Europe, to the rest of Europe, that would mess up the domestic politics of their own countries. That's central. That's a really central issue to their strategic interests. So what they've done is they've made a choice. You know, it's it 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 it's a less bad choice to work with them 
<laughs> then, then maybe to not work with them. Um, it, it's, you know, back to the paradigm of the last 30 years. I mean, this recalls H.R. McMaster's concept of strategic narcissism. It's like we haven't had to make choices. So when we talk about SFA, we're thinking about, okay, well, they got to be this and they got to be that and that and that and that and so forth. They got a big, long checklist. And, and you know, that's, that's great. It, it, it's still compatible with our national interests. It, it also represents our ideas and, and, and so forth. But it's also a function of not really having to make these kinds of hard choices. Sure. And, and, and I think you're right. Um, we haven't had to make those kind of hard choices to, to in certain respects in Iraq and Afghanistan. In other respects, I, I, I think we kind of have, certainly if you look at it historically, you know, from a policy perspective in the United States, there's been kind of this pendulum that swings back and forth um, between periods where we have, you know, where we're maybe a little bit more pragmatic about the partners that we choose to work with and other times where we're, we're a little bit more uncomfortable about working with them. Um, we have, for instance, the Leahy Law in the United States, which requires U.S. government personnel not to work with, um, you know, egregious human rights violators, for instance. And I don't think, you know, you're suggesting that we shouldn't have that law. I, I think you would agree that it's important that we do know who who we're working with. Yeah, oversight. Oversight's very important. I mean, it's it's because I think that the ideas and values are also part of our national interest. Uh, but. But what, what's changing right now is, is that we now have the intervention of, of choice. That, that we have to make choices or we will begin to have to make choices where in the past we could have it just the way that, that we wanted, which, which I think is really at the heart of McMaster's idea of strategic narcissism. Because, because if, if you're the hegemon, you can make mistakes or you can be inefficient about these sorts of things. You know, we can certainly see inefficient SFA in weak states. And it didn't really matter, or at least it didn't really matter right away because because we were so powerful. But in the future, if it does matter, if failure does matter, and you have to do it a different way, this is where you really begin to confront these choices and you have to you have to decide, you know, what what is the measure of our own values. Um as a society and our definition of our national interest in, in a global environment. Yeah. And I mean, it's the damned if you do damned if you don't, when it comes to military assistance, especially in Africa, because when you talk to a lot of military officers from various countries in Africa, they say something to the effect of, of yeah, we want to work with the U S but if, we're not getting money or we're not getting assistance or help from you, then it's going to be the Chinese or Russians. They prefer to work with the Americans. But this again goes back to, you know, if we look at them and be like, well, you, you know, your units are committing abuses and things that we don't like. We can't work with you. And they're like, well, the Chinese and Russians are, are willing to work with us either through their con their contractors, other sort of the ways they, you know, provide military assistance on the continent. It, it, that's that's the you know the damn if you do and you don't because we're trying to compete for influence and it, in, in in many ways it is almost like the Cold War again about like we have to make these uh, big strategic decisions and you know do you have to take the trade offs into account? Oh, that's right. I and in some cases our values really do you know outweigh the the interest in actually competing in some places. I, I mean we don't have to compete everywhere. 
and I think it would be foolish for us to compete everywhere. It's, it's sort of a more contemporary equivalent to, you know, the global war on terror idea that instability in any country is, is uh, somehow a threat to the interests of the United States. And, and that just isn't so. And, uh, but, but one thing I, I think that we do need clarity as as we move into an age of of more difficult choices is we have to do a much better job of defining what our interest is i mean the essence of strategy at, at, at least in in conflict is asking the question why do we fight like we couldn't answer that question adequately for the american people for quite some time with afghanistan i mean that's a real big problem and if we're providing security force assistance in a in a state where, where you know our armed forces are also intervening and we can't answer the question of why we're fighting i mean that's a big that's a big problem mm, i you know you've, you you talked a little bit you've kind of touched on this um you know, I guess the 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 gap sometimes the disparity between how these things look from a strategic or a policy level versus how they look on the ground. You guys have talked also about um, the many many interviews that you've done. I'm particularly interested in the ones that you've done with advisors, with tactical level advisors, with that experience, both in the U.S. and um, and other countries. Is there anything that kind of comes out of it that when you piece it all together is especially, I guess, illuminating about about the subject of, of security force assistance and, and you know, how, I guess, to, um, to plan and conduct it in the future? What the, the number one thing I, I've, I've heard in so many interviews with advisors, if it's the U.S., and if it's not the U.S., you know, it's, you know, it's the Europeans, is this consistently comes up of, you know, they're talking about their advising mission in country X, Y, or Z. And they almost always come down to saying, yeah, we've been half-assing it the last few years or, you know, during my time here. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, people come up with ideas, you know, to do something and then it never gets fully executed because then that person goes on to a different job. And, and, and that's, that's, uh, you know, I know, uh, academics aren't supposed to be like big advocates for policy, but I guess I can do that as a, as a warrior scholar, my air quotes there is if we took this seriously, which we should for 340 plus billion dollars over 20 years, there should actually be some accountability with having actual like general officers overseeing, you know, if we're going to do SFA, for example, in Somalia, there needs to be someone held accountable and have that job for five to 10 years. It doesn't have to be a general. It could be an SES, something to that effect. But it's, I, I think that's, I think that's also the, probably the biggest, the biggest disconnect is the lack of accountability because at the end of the day, I've talked to so many folks and like, they'll tell me like, the bosses just wanted to hear about the quantity, not the quality. So they just wanted to hear, hey, how many people did you train? I don't care about the quality if, if, if they desert a few weeks later. Don't put that in your performance report that, that they deserted because that's not your fault. Your, your, your responsibility was to train them how to march and shoot at the, you know, at the range. And I, I feel like that's, that's where the lack of accountability in a lot of this goes because, I, I mean, Will or John, have you heard of anybody actually getting in trouble for at least at like like the colonel or above level when it comes to military advising actually being held accountable for just a lot of these bad dumb programs that 
again, as I, I as actually, I can, I'm thinking back to it. Hey, look, they're just doing what they're supposed to do in a bad, dumb program. I mean, the problem is 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 a problem at higher leadership because bad, dumb programs are. Are, are designed by somebody that I think bears a lot more responsibility. For. No, but I mean, like, this is why I, I, I keep saying, like, if we actually wanted to get this right and we're going to continue probably spending 10 to $20 billion a year for the foreseeable future, uh, if if we're going to keep doing this, uh, like, I, I honestly think the biggest fix would be there needs to be, like, like, across you know the joint force professional advising and there has to be a career path to becoming a four-star a general because advising is not easy work it requires like honestly like when we you know i think i think when your questions are you're talking about like should, should we just fully focus on uh, you know a conventional war fighting and yeah and it's like well yeah we weren't able to do it because we kept trying to do the global war on terror stuff and we also want to keep talking about having a military that can conventionally defeat China and Russia. And then, you know, with the leftovers, we're going to throw it at advising. And, you know, that's, that's again, why I, that's the most consistent remark heard from any advisor is, yeah, we were half-assing it here because they just cobbled together like a military advising group or, you know, a special unit to go do advising there. And there's no accountability. Uh, you know, unfortunately for some people, you know, going into advising is almost, it's, it's, uh, it's the end of your career at that point. Like that, that's what I'm saying. Like if we cared about this and obviously they care about it in, in the soft community, the only reason why we've had to start creating general purpose SFA, uh, SFA units like air advisors or SFABs is because we burned out our soft over the last two decades doing this. Well, that's what I want to ask you. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you know, security force assistance is a mission that, you know, in the guise of foreign internal defense is something the special operations forces are uniquely suited to. It requires capabilities that are typically resident within special operations forces. Should they be the ones doing this mission? Should it be, you know, we've got now um, the SVABs in the Army, the Air Advisors in the Air Force. We have sort of specialized forces for this. Who who within the U.S. military, within the joint force should be should be doing this? Well, I mean, if you ask the politicians, they've decided in many cases, if it doesn't matter enough, they, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, they just use the National Guard. Oh, we need peacekeepers in Sinai or the Balkans? Send the National Guard. We need to do, you know, SFA in Ukraine? Send the National Guard. Um, but, I mean, who should do it? I think, I mean, if it's general forces or if it's SF or whatever, I mean, I think that, People can become uh, very capable, uh, very competent at these kinds of tasks. But, I mean, from my point of view, what's needed is institutional continuity. And that you have individuals who become uh, very knowledgeable about a place. You know, SF folks that learn languages and so forth. I mean, this isn't beyond the capabilities, I think, of, of other soldiers. Um, but, but the key is knowing the place, being there, having networks. I mean, when I look at the British or the French in Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, these are much lower resourced militaries. And so in a sense, they do have to try harder. They have to figure out how they're going to use the human resources in a more effective way. So you get people that specialize a lot more. Uh, they don't have as many places to move around to, so it's it's just different kind of militaries. But but 
they're they're the sorts of people that are very networked with the elite of that country that can read between the lines that have an intuitive sense about the politics what does work and what doesn't work in terms of of uh, of advising assisting uh, armed forces in those countries so i think that these are these are potential models and you know one way to maybe do that is to try to find a pathway in different parts of the US military where people can actually pursue professional development. But what I worry about now is that the people that I meet who actually become interested enough in difficult places, uh, they're the oddballs. It's sort of like the antibodies in the institution, in the organization begin to attack them. And they get frustrated because they're going to miss other opportunities and and so forth. But but I feel like they're kind of like me. They're kind of like the academic uh, who, who can, you know, I get paid to focus. <laughs> they, they they have to move around on a regular basis. Well, you've, you've sort of touched on a couple of the advantages that are purported, you know, to be part of this, uh, this model of advising that is sort of embodied by the Security Force Assistance Brigades in the Army. Um, number one, that it creates opportunities and opportunities for career progression within the advising field. And number two, as a function of that, and also because of the, the regional alignment of the SFABs, um, that there's the opportunity for enhanced long-term relationships with partners. You have you know, conducted a number of interviews with individuals who have been on the receiving end of U.S. military advising efforts. I wonder if you can kind of speak a little bit about that, about the importance of of those relationships and developing local understanding and, and things of that nature. I mean, that does kind of come back to the old FID model, I think, because, I mean, nobody likes to talk about Vietnam, but, you know, Rufus Phillips, he's in his 90s. You know, he was the silent American, I guess, and so forth. But, but I mean, this was a sort of person who you know, really made a vocation out of, of studying Vietnamese politics, knowing the networks, uh, being able to identify the, the interests and the likes and dislikes of individuals and that sort of thing. So I think that it's very important in any kind of engagement when you're trying to affect outcomes in, in countries, particularly with weak institutions, uh, that, that you have to have that personal touch. And that's something that I think we have lost. It's, it's a problem throughout the United States' external face. I mean, here in Rome, okay, I noted that the U.S. Embassy is still in the city. Probably somewhere there are plans to put it 50 miles outside. But it's this isolation of... of American interests, those who represent America abroad, I mean, both at the civilian level and then also that sort of cocooning them in, in Byzantine procedure, I think, on the military side, uh, that's, that's a real big problem. And, and to his point, I mean, that institutional memory, I mean, uh, I was uh, interviewing an Ethiopian general like a few years ago, and it was funny. I finally got him to open up, and he started joking about like, He's like, yeah, after the first, you know, two American generals I had to deal with because I guess they rotated through East Africa every year and a half uh, or so, you know, because they were based out of Djibouti. 
He was like, I, I knew the American playbook. He's like, I, I understood after having two American generals after three years that they were going to come in and act a certain way towards me, carrots and sticks, and they have no clue what they're talking about, what they're doing, but they were told, here's a playbook to deal with the Ethiopians. And he was like, it was just, he was like, if you guys have no clue what you're doing here, and you send this American general by, and you know he doesn't know what he's doing here, and he talks to me as if he thinks he does, and it's like, no, you don't. And he just was like, yeah, so we just, we maximize, and he obviously didn't say, you know, we maximize the rent sinking, but you know, he, he joked about like, yeah, we took full advantage of the Americans because I knew his playbook of how he would try to like, you know, extract, you know, concessions and reforms for what we do with the Ethiopian government and military. But at the same time, he's like, I, I knew he, he wouldn't understand when I'm getting stuff that he couldn't actually monitor or check what I'm doing. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, I think that's, I think that's where actually like the light bulb actually came on when I realized like, oh yeah, uh, you know, you know, from a, a very American centric perspective, like we think we know better and like we're, you know, like we're playing them and it's like, no, in most cases, especially when we have such high turnover and changeover in these jobs advising and working with foreign militaries, no, they're actually playing us. That's right. So if you get that really fast rotation, then the person who's from that place gets to train the next American. Yeah. And I, I mean, some of these places are real hard. I mean, in, in Somalia, for example, it's, you know, a guy's got his first name and then his second name's his father's first name and third name's his grandfather's first name. Okay. So in a system like that, try to figure out like who's related to who. I mean, because you don't really have stable family names. But one thing about the politics in that place is like, that's really important. <laughs> and there's all kinds of other things that, that you have to ask people questions. You have to be around on the ground for a while. You have to build your own networks. You have to socialize with people that, that you need to find out about individuals that are going to give you a lot of information about uh, what they're really going to do with those resources that, that you give them. It takes a long time to get to get all learned up on that, and <clears throat> I think with people just flashing through places, that 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 that's real hard to do. And you know, there are a few people that do stay longer, uh, but but organizationally in our own institutions, um, I think that that would be a real productive move in terms of swimming downstream you know, doing SFA or whatever fit or whatever you want to call it in the future, doing it cheap, doing it effectively. You know, we've, we've talked for a while now and the vast majority of the conversation has focused on all of the ways in which this is really hard, the challenges, the, the obstacles and the pitfalls. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some examples, you know, if there are some that, that you could point to where SFA has been planned and executed with reasonably successful outcomes um, to me, you know, the case that comes to mind is is Planned Columbia. Uh, is Columbia an example of a place where SFA has been done, you know, reasonably well? Sure. I, I, you know, I mean, say what you will about some of the problems and so forth. I think that when you look at outcomes, that that's a pretty effective engagement. Uh, if if you're looking at countries that got really weak state institutions that have governments that have an, an innate fear of <laughs> that capability that we're trying to give to armed forces because they think it's going to be used against them. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, 
really some cases on the margin. I think that the British in Sierra Leone uh, since 1999, 2000, uh, this would be a good case of very sparse resources. Of course, they got a lot of help from international community otherwise as well. It's a small country and uh, a people that didn't seem to be as offended by foreigners showing up in their place. But but, but that's a good example of taking a country that, that was a real mess and 20 years down the road, you've, you've got a, a pretty long record now of, of at least some stability. I mean, maybe if they left or went further over the horizon right now, everything would fall apart. Now they're going to have to decide if they're going to maintain that commitment. But that's an example of understanding the political context, swimming downstream, figuring out how to leverage um, sort of deep knowledge that they have and, you know, doing it in a way that that actually produces some results in terms of what they set out to do, the the limited aims that they had. And, and um, now you can't do that in Congo. Country is a lot bigger. Uh, places like Libya, problem is you show up and then they, they want to fight you. But, but, I mean, we obviously know it works because, I mean... What happened in Syria with the, you know, with the Assad regime, you know, the Iranians and the Russians, uh, you know, invested pretty heavily in trying to prop up that regime. And I think they did it not only in treasure, but they had the actual skin in the game. I I think I actually read an official report from the Iranians where they admitted they lost over 2000 Iranian troops in Syria. Oh, wow. Um, I, what did America have the actual <laughs> political willpower to lose 2000 plus troops in, in a civil war in Syria? I don't think we did. And well, we obviously didn't. It showed that to the Iranian regime that Syria actually mattered. So, you know, that's, that's part of the lesson too. I mean, I think looking at success cases and trying to think about the future and that circles back to the earlier point about, we also have to know why we're there. I mean, I, I think the British, in a sense, knew why they were in Sierra Leone. And it wasn't just about Sierra Leone. It was about their relationship with the other countries, including us, and identifying something that they could do, burden sharing. So that may be another piece of the, of, of the puzzle, too, is that if there are places that we find hard, maybe there are others that we can work with, you know, some of our NATO allies who are, who are going to be much more invested in these places, who are going to be, well, like the Iranians in Syria, they're, you know, they're going to be able to deal with the fact that there may be casualties and, and they should be doing it, not us. And I think that that's the story of the French in places like Mali right now. It is much more important to the French. It's somewhat important to us, but they should be there. We should not be there. And they do take casualties. And, they are grappling with some of these difficult questions to, you know, give assistance to a country that you, know, you have to be careful, you know, you wake up one day and there's a coup and there's another coup and, and, and so forth, a very difficult situation. But, but study that organizational response, you know, within the, the, the French military and also their foreign policy establishment and, how they define SFA and and how they match that then with their national interests, their their big strategic plan. 
Well, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, to both of you for making some time to sit down and have a chat about a topic that, to be honest, has a lot of attention, quite rightfully so. Um, and the discussions about it, how you know how it should be conceptualized and, and planned and conducted going forward are very much ongoing. Um, I, I think that this conversation uh, continues that discussion forward. So I want to thank you both for your participation. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.